So in the last few months, we've seen some major security issues with the Eastern Pipeline in the United States, where it's had a huge impact on the oil industry, on the economy of the Eastern United States, and really the global markets as a whole. And again, security becomes something that we as a society and we as engineers have to consider. Now, obviously, that was more of a software breach in security. Um, and as embedded engineers, we're not quite looking at that. But we have to consider in the systems that we're designing, how can security potentially impact our designs? Uh, how can security impact possibly the network that our embedded system might be connected to? And certainly over the course of the last few years, we've seen embedded systems be a weak point allowing hackers to get access to a larger network behind it. And also in our embedded systems, if a hacker were to get access to the embedded system, is there potential for danger or damage um, through having access to the controls of a generator, having access to the controls of a motor uh, that could possibly be an issue? Now, with all of that in mind, we as embedded engineers are still constantly being asked to reduce system cost, reduce system size, reduce system power consumption, reduce system complexity, all while, you know, making sure that we've got every feature that we possibly need. So it's very important, I think, when it comes to security, how do we as embedded engineers make that decision on the return of investment on adding security to our system? How do we know that that's going to be worthwhile in our system? Uh, and in addition to that, how do we become a trusted advisor to our companies and become a trusted advisor to our end users to convince them it's worth spending the extra amount of time in the design, uh, that it's worth spending the extra amount of money to possibly add security to our system. Today, I'm very, very privileged to talk to Kimberly Din Dinsmore, who's the uh, principal engineer in the industrial IoT business unit at Renesis Electronics and is an expert in embedded security design. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. No, no problem, Todd. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And this is a conversation, you know, as I was saying before we started the call, I, I've been really excited to do this interview and have this conversation for you because this is an area of embedded design that I think I've been trying to learn more about over the course of the last few years. And I think many embedded engineers are kind of in the same position. Um, you know, so, you know, as I talked about, you know, anytime we add any feature, uh, any new feature, expanded feature to our embedded design and our embedded system, um, in, in this case, security, there's going to be a cost associated with that, whether that's the design time, whether that's having to add other parts um, to that, that design. So as embedded engineers, how should we measure the value of one spending that time and money? And also, how do we communicate that uh, to our businesses that that's a worthwhile investment in the design? That's honestly a question I get a lot from, especially from IDHs, because it seems that engineers in general appreciate the value of security. They understand the theory. Um, they, they understand that these attacks are real, they can happen, and they can even target even embedded systems. Um, and so I've, they literally asked me point blank, how do we convince our customers to ask us to create products that use this? Um, Unfortunately, the people asking for the products, creating the products, the OEMs, they have a different mindset than engineers. And so the first thing you have to do is you have to understand their pain points and where they're coming from. Right. And they're, they're making products to create money. So, okay, to do that, they have to be able to sell the products. Are there legal re regulations that require a certain level of security? This is a good one. Yeah. This one's coming yeah. up now. Um, a lot of countries, EU, um, EU um, Europe, um, UK and such, 
um, there are very specific guidelines. California, the the um, the the new bill there, yeah. it's not so new anymore. Um, require a certain certain functionality in order to simply be able to sell the product in that area. So that's a that's a good one to start with. If we want to do this, um, a, a trivial one is no default passwords. You know, I mean, it sounds easy, but there's actually a little bit of infrastructure required to do that. Um, so that's that, that's the first one. Look at the legal re- regulations. Another one is look at the competition. If you can say, you know, look at this competitor ABC. They've already got this security solution. If we don't have it, no one is going to buy ours because we will be perceived as being less secure, less less with the times, less knowledgeable, and we won't be able to sell it. Those those are typically two of the two of the good pain points. Um, some of the some of the other ones. Um, you know the un- unfortunately the 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 major hacks and everything those tend to get discounted but if you can find the um if you can find their production pain points things like cloning lost losses to cloning losses to ip protection losses to um overproduction those tend to get more interest because those affect the oem producers you know bottom line you know in other words f- um, follow the money and see where their pain points are for that no absolutely and, and i think that's what we've seen in many of the the different companies that we've worked with um is that a lot of times when you have that initial discussion on security um they're interested uh, engineers want to talk about it and, and all the way up to the cfo they want to talk about it uh but it tends to be on that first design eh, well i don't know if it's worth the investment uh and then it's not till after unfortunately something bad happens and then they're very very interested interested uh, in, in the next generation of design. Say, okay, Todd, we want to talk about security this time. We, we want some help. But at that point, there's already a sunk cost. There, there's already been some cost, maybe in some cases, all the way to their brand that they now have to do some damage control over. Um, and and it's, it's a tough decision for a lot of companies out there. Um, and I think it's, it's one of those situations, and I think you've mentioned it to me before, it, it's uh, where you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that's, that's what security really ends up being. I think one of the things, you know, as I have conversations with engineers, uh, it's always a challenge is, Black hat hackers are a little bit of this kind of mythical beast, right? We don't really know what they're capable of. It's almost Uh magical. And so even if we do put the investment in and take the time um, to, you know, try and stop those black hat hackers or somebody that would actually try and damage or get into our system – we don't really know what they're capable of. We don't know if we really have secured our system, if we actually put the effort into it. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, what are some of the things that a bad actor, a black hat actor is is going to be looking for in an embedded system to exploit? Well, it's really interesting because you say black hat or white hat. And yeah. there really isn't a lot of difference in their techniques. They, they're, yeah. they're all looking for the same things. It's just the reason behind what they're doing. I mean, White Hat, they, they, love just, they just love to get in there and break it and see what they can do. They like, look at this. It has this this vulnerability, like the like the, the Apple AirTags. You know, look what we can do. Right. Um, it's motivation. Black Hat motivation is money. And so that's that's when it does scare you. But you can actually learn a lot from the White Hat because they'll, they'll publish it. It's like, say, this is how we did it. Air, the AirTags hack, you can go online and you can see a complete list of what they did to get it. Um, so if you go back to the black, black hat, the, their motivation is money, right? So yeah. they they want to work on something that will allow them to make money. The whole pipeline thing, right? They didn't care about bringing down infrastructure. They just wanted the money. So this is It's a reoccurring theme here, isn't it? <laughs> um, oh, it is. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. It's sad, but if you understand it, you can work with it. Right. Um, um, 
still the general principles apply. Um, big thing is is IP. I mean, a, a lot of embedded systems have some really valuable IP, and a lot of times the engineers don't realize how valuable their their efforts actually are. Now, I've had engineers say that, oh, I don't care about my, my firmware. It's fine. There's nothing important in it. And it's like, no. Um, for example, we've got um, welding machines that have um, that where our customer has put in um, really nice proprietary IP for um, reducing sputtering, which is very important if you're a welder. If you're not a welder, you, you know you wouldn't think about it. But that sort of thing. And if a black hat can can get that IP out and get those algorithms out, he can then turn around and sell them to a competitor. And so IP protection, especially, is really important for in yeah. the embedded world. You know, you don't undervalue engineers should not undervalue the the uh, their their own work and their own their own IP. Um, so just the Great the point. very fundamental locking the, the 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 MCU down such that you can't read it out. Um, you can't read out that the firmware is a is a huge step. Um, any any other sensitive data, um, we'll be, I'm sure we'll be talking about this later. Um, anything that has to do with keys, you know, anything anything you can do to secure your keys, um, those those things are what primary um, primary hackers will do. They'll try to dump the IP and they'll try to get keys out. At a certain point, um, it turns out that the MCU is often not the weakest link in the chain. It'll be the people. There'll be other ways to get that information. So if the, you yeah. if you do due diligence on securing your IP, securing securing the firmware, and securing your keys, you'll you'll go a long way. Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. Um, and and I think you know I, I think this, the industry has been looking at new ways of integrating that kind of thing into systems. Uh, but it has been a lot of focus to your point on the MCU, and uh, certainly big news from Renesis in the course of the last year or so with the release of the RA family. And you guys have started incorporating you know the M thirty three M twenty three cores and, and and bringing in the ARM trust zone uh, into those cores and the microcontrollers. So so talk to me a little bit about that. You know that, that the trust zone is something. That that we hear a lot about. It's being discussed a lot, uh, you know, across the entirety of the industry. Um, what does Trust Zone bring uh, to this to, to, to the engineer uh, to the system? How does it help to secure the system as a whole? Um, and, and what should an embedded engineer be considering when they're looking at Trust Zone um, and they've never done secure design before? Okay, um, Trust Zone is really nice isolation solution. So you would use isolation as a part of your overall security solution. So it's not it's not something like, oh, I've got Trust Zone, my, my solution is automatically secure. Absolutely right. not. It's a component. You know, security is layers, and isolation is a very important layer. Um, for a little background, it came from the Cortex-A world, where um, you can easily see where it makes sense because on the cortex a you have multiple applications from multiple people who some of whom you may or may not trust and you want to keep your just that extra layer of protection of your trusted your, your very secure assets away from the, your potentially untrusted parties um, cortex m world is, is a little bit um we're still finding our feet honestly to be um honest with the um with, with trust zone because a lot of Cort cortex m applications are written by a single team or single even a single developer and so the idea of separating something from yourself still seems a bit weird to people but it, it still has it still absolutely has value because of when you start having connected devices you start that now have firmware upgrade capability you introduce the possibility that someone else could actually infiltrate your system and so even though it looks like you're protecting it from yourself you may not be um, Trust Zone just adds an, an extra extra layer because it, it's, it greatly reduces the attack surface without getting into too much detail. Yeah. Um, it's one of the um, 
it's, it's an excellent solution for significantly reducing the attack surface on your secure area. Makes sense. Makes sense. And then, so the other aspect, you know, outside of just the microcontroller itself and, and actually being able to physically get to that system, um, you know, is certainly everything these days is being connected more and more to the cloud. I think one of the, the more, uh, you know, a few years ago, one of the, the more um, publicized breaches was a big box chain uh, who I think uh, credit card information was stolen based on a hacker getting through the thermostat within one of their stores. Um, and so we've seen that kind of thing happen where probably the engineer who was designing that thermostat never considered that someone would have access to credit card information um you know by using that uh by using their thermostat uh but that certainly happened so you know for any of these kinds of systems where you know we're connecting to the cloud or we're connecting to a wi-fi network maybe just a local wi-fi network um you know, what are some of the things that we've got to consider in that where, you know, to, to ensure that, that our system can't be compromised or be utilized to get access to a bigger network behind it? Well, whenever you're thinking about cloud connectivity um, or connectivity in general, the first thing you really honestly need to think, remember, is that you need to make sure that your, your system is designed at the beginning to be updatable. Because threats always get worse, you know, the attackers always get better, they're always really good at stringing together little bits like, like the thermostat, you know, various little minute little cracks that all of a sudden you put them all together and you've got a, a major problem. So yeah. it's always important to, to, to make sure that from, when you're designing your system that it's updatable from the beginning. Um, of course, you add on to that, you have to check, watch for fail-safes. You know, what to ha you know, make sure your design includes things like, you know, what happens if the up there was a, a problem in the update you didn't see where now it can't get a new update. So rollback is never a, a good idea, yet you do need to have some sort of, you know, fallback in case everything goes wrong that wasn't supposed to happen. So that sort of thing. Um, as far as cloud connectivity in, in general, the most important part is, is um, the authentication. You know, it's, it's, it's probably one of the most important parts in a security solution is do you have permission to do what you want to do? Um, and that's very important with, with cloud. There's a couple different ways to do it. Um, there's um, typically two key, key types of infrastructures. One is a lightweight infrastructure where you share a pre-shared key. Mm -hmm. um, it's good for, for small devices. It tends to be a, more difficult to manage because you would want each device to have its own key, and yet the infrastructure now needs to know the individual device, individual key for every single device. Um, advantages that it's very lightweight to create something like that. Um, what you really would prefer is to have um, some what we call our PKI, our public key infrastructure, where um, the um, each each device has a cryptographic identity, but the in, cryptographic identity is split in, in two pieces, and one that can be shared publicly, and one that's kept privately. Um, that is typically the, um, the way you'd want to go for any sort of cloud connectivity, where you have public public key infrastructure and that sort of identity. It's it's the infrastructure is um, is interesting. Um, yeah. It's not it's not. Uh, it's not trivial. It's not simple, um, but it's it's well worth doing. Um, the good thing is that um, there's a lot of partner solutions out there or third-party solutions that are out there. Um, the cloud vendors themselves are a little bit slow. I've seen on implementing really good device management systems for for cloud onboarding and such at, at scale. However, there are several third parties that, that I've been working with personally, and I know there's going to be more out there who have some really nice solutions for true device management, certificate revocation, okay. um, that sort of thing. So um, 
I would definitely suggest if you're going to design something, a big a big cloud infrastructure with you know a, a big IoT deployed system that uses a, a public cloud, to definitely look into some of the third-party device management systems because they are really really nice and will make um, your onboarding and device management a lot nicer. Oh, very nice, very nice. That's definitely something to consider. And you mentioned a really important point, I think, early on in that, which is you know the ability to constantly you know part of security is is ensuring that you can realize where you've got mistakes and in the field upgrade your systems firmware to you know block those mistakes, fix those mistakes, ensure that they can't be um, you know uh, continue to be a crack as you mentioned in the system over time. So, but but in doing that and, and having the ability to um, upgrade your system in the field, upgrade firmware in the field, there is a little bit of an element of you're adding another potential breach, security breach, uh, you know, area where, you know, if you can't upgrade the, the the firmware in the field and if a hacker were to find a way to, to upgrade the firmware in the field or maybe read the firmware as it's being upgraded and, and again, steal your intellectual property, that could be an enormous uh, issue against you as well. How can designers ensure that malicious code uh, is not going to be something that uh, a hacker could take advantage of and, and, and would be able to reprogram? Their, your, one of your products. Right. Well, the nice thing is, this um, a lot of the potential threats actually have very, very similar solutions. So if you go through the the um, the uh, the pain of, uh, of in for in implementing a public key infrastructure for identity, right. you can leverage that for your firmware updates. Um, the 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 basic concept uh, would be. Uh, okay, um, PKI provides authenticity, so that way you would know that the new firmware is indeed from the source that you, you expect it to be from. Um, the, the new firmware would be signed. The, the device would have a public the public key of the person creating the new firmware. The person creating the new firmware would keep their private key private. And um, as long as that key does that key doesn't get compromised, you know you're good. Um, a lot of people will have multiple keys, multiple sets of keys in case keys get compromised. So they'll have key rotation. Um, another really really great. Uh, uh, additional layer for security um it um it can also be done with um with uh, pre-shared keys with like symmetric keys sure. but you do have the additional issue of okay you've got to manage do, do you ha then program a hundred thousand of these devices all with the same key um it re it makes it more likely that the key will be exposed so you pay for the simplicity with a potent with a a larger attack surface so again pki it, it it does give you a lot of provides a lot of answers for a lot of this this the security questions that you've got um, in addition to that um, we talk about authenticity but the new firmware in general when you download it it's nice if that is if it's not delivered over a secure channel you really want to consider encrypting it because you don't want somebody grabbing your firmware in right. transit and whatever. If it's over a TLS connection, it will already be encrypted. So sure. you, may, you, you could potentially not worry about that. But if it's over a non-secure channel, you can do that. And PKI allows, it has um, multiple solutions that allow you to deliver the firmware encrypted as well. Okay. All right. That's that's great. Uh, and then, you know, lastly, you, you mentioned earlier on that a lot of engineers don't consider how valuable the intellectual property they've created in their firmware really is and can be uh, to black hat hackers who, again, to your point, are typically looking for money. Um, you know, so from that standpoint, intellectual property protection is absolutely critical uh, for our firmware and making sure that uh, it can't be copied. Um, sometimes that's as, you know, like we said, over uh, during an OTA uh, firmware update. 
Um, or it could just be a matter of, you know, as we send our design over to be manufactured in another location, um, ensuring that that manufacturer only builds the specific number of units that we want built and that nothing's going out the back door, uh, that they're not able to take our, our, our firmware um, and sell that to maybe another competitor or, or that gets out into the public market um, and used against our business. Um, so what are some of the things that engineers can do to make sure that they are protecting their intellectual property um, and, and that uh, none of those bad actors whether it's a, a hacker, as we've been talking about, or maybe a bad acting CM um, who's producing a, a lower cost product that's a complete clone of what we've done. I think you touched on it with there, where um, a lot of this is um, the manufacturing for production issues with um, contract manufacturers. Um, that's usually where the problem is going to be. But the engineer is the one who has to come up with the solution to affect right. that. And a lot of times engineers aren't even familiar with the, the production flow process. Yeah. So it's important that the engineers realize, okay, where is this product going and who's going to be handling it? So they can identify where the threats are, where the vulnerabilities are. Um, I've got customers who have complete control over their manufacturing. It's done on site, no problem. You know, and and so they don't have to worry about this issue. Then again, we've got uh, from the absolute opposite end of the spectrum, the contract manufacturers all around the world that may not be so trusted. Um, there's a few different solutions that you can do, look at, depending on the flow that you, your, the, product, the product's manufacturing needs to take. Um, the simplest, easiest way is to utilize something like your Sigur so provisioning services, Sigur so sure. programming and provisioning services. Yeah. Honestly, that's a great solution. Yeah. Um, even if even if the firmware is firmware updatable, you can provide the uh, the provisioning aspect, the the initial secure bootloader, and the, the first version of firmware, all all to yourselves over the uh, you know over a, a secure in a, in a secure manner. Um, I believe your 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 production programming partners are ISO twenty seven oh one certified, which yep. is absolutely brilliant so customers can have complete faith that they can provide you securely with all this very sensitive material and they'll get x number of devices re returned to them so they'll have they order 10,000 they will get 10,000 and then only 10,000 they can provide those 10,000 to the contract manufacturer and the contract manufacturer can only build 10,000 so right. that cuts down your ip your um, overproduction right there if you make sure that the devices are something are suitable for being able to be locked, such that you can't re-enable the debug interface, re-enable um, re the programming interface, then you don't have to worry about the IP theft because the ISO certifications um, guarantee that to the customer, our customers, that um, the material is handled securely during the prediction and provisioning and programming process, and the MCUs are delivered in a locked state, so you don't have to worry about those. Um, some people don't have that that option though. Sometimes it's a bit of a mix of a production flow, and um, so sometimes what can happen is um, the devices need to be delivered with with initial provisioning, initial identity, and additional an initial secure bootloader. But for some one reason or another, not the entire program, and that's okay. That can be done. What what um, happens then is a lot of times that initial bootloader and initial test program will then be used at the contract manufacturer to connect to a, the um, the um, OEM server mm -hmm. to re download 
the first version of official firmware along with test configurations and test programs and, and such. And that then the OEM server can then keep track of how many times that firmware has been downloaded and the identity of the device that it was used on. So that's a, that's a bit more complicated, but there, there are a, a lot of different solutions that we can look at and we can we all can be very flexible to support the um, the end product manufacturer to support their production requirements. Perfect, perfect. And, and uh, you know, th this is never a pleasant, I think, subject for any engineer to consider. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's never easy to take a look at what could be the horrible things that could possibly happen with our design. Where could things go wrong? But I think it's such an incredibly important part of our discipline. Uh, and, and, you know, I think we've done this for years when it comes to surge protection and, and all these other different hardware type things that we've done. Um, and, and I think uh, it, it's going to be an incredibly important part of being an embedded engineer going forward that we all get very familiar with securing our firmware and securing our overall designs to uh, to avoid any potential issues here. So, Kimberly, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your expertise um, and everything you bring to the table. Uh, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. So if you have any other questions on security, if you're looking to secure your systems, you want to talk to experts like Kimberly or, or the future electronics engineers who are also spending a lot of time learning about these products, we'd absolutely love to help you in your designs. Please reach out to us at, uh, at, at shapingthefuture at futureelectronics.com. Again, shapingthefuture at futureelectronics.com. We'd love to help in your designs um, and help, help you look at the different options that are available to you and talk to the experts that can ensure uh, that you're headed in the right direction. Thank you very much and uh, look forward to talking to you next time.